may be seated. I've been to Cedar Point down in Ohio a number of times now. One of the things that's really neat at Cedar Point is the Top Thrill Dragster. I don't know if you've ever heard of this roller coaster, but yeah, I see some smiles over there. And one of the things that's really neat with the Top Thrill Dragster is just the, the assault it has on your senses. It, it does things to you that, that you're just not used to. Because you see, it starts, you're, you're sitting at a standstill, and it takes you from standstill to 120 miles per hour over the course of four seconds. And then it shoots you directly upward, and, and you go upward 420 feet, barely making it to the very top as it creeps over the top, and then it slowly peaks over the bottom to where you're looking almost directly down at the ground, and it corkscrews you down to the bottom and back into the, the finish. And, and this whole ride takes maybe 15 or 20 seconds at most. But it, it's just amazing, the speed and, and the noise, the wind you feel against you, and, and just the, the gravity against your body as, as you go. It's, it's really an assault on your senses, and, and it feels very dangerous and that's one of the things that's so fun about it is it's such a thrill because it seems so dangerous and I'll be honest with you if when I got on this roller coaster and they strapped me in if they were to tell me at that point you know you have a two percent chance of surviving this roller coaster ride it wouldn't seem quite as much fun you see the fun is it seems extremely dangerous but they basically guarantee me, as much as they possibly can, that it's going to be all right. They've taken the precautions, and they say it's going to be safe. You are going to get to the other side. And I can place my confidence in them because this isn't the first time they've run this. I, I would not be the person who gets on that roller coaster the first time it runs. But you see, they've done it thousands and thousands and thousands of times, and it always works. And so based on the history of safety, what's happened in the past, I trust their authority that I will safely get from one side to the other side. What we see in our text today, in Mark 4, verses 35 to 41, an example not altogether different from this. We see a group of people on a ride from one side to another side. It was a dangerous ride, a harrowing ride even. It was a ride where they feared. Follow along with me as I read to you the words of, from Mark 4 verses 35 to 41. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, 
ceased and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even wind and sea obey him? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches it. And pray that you would indeed now apply it to our hearts. Speak in and through me during this time that we might all be edified and most of all that you might be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've been preaching recently a series on faith and doubt and how often in the midst of our faith we lapse into doubt and how perfect faith would, would be incompatible with doubt, but the reality is that those of us who are people of faith, who have received this gift of faith from God, often fall into doubt, and that we often have a tendency to live as those who are members of a faithless generation, as opposed to trusting in God in all situations. When the storms hit us, we have a tendency to fear. about storms, first of all, is that storms are often those things that God has led us into. We tend to think sometimes that storms are, are those things which hit us when we deviate from the path that God has marked out for us, but that's, that is not always the case. That is often not the case. We'll get back to that a little bit later, but I want us to keep that in our mind as we start thinking about what God has for us here in this passage today. A number of years ago, before Erin and I were married, she and her family went on a trip, and, and on this trip, that part of it involved going deep sea fishing. And Erin's uh, grandmother loved adventure. She was a very adventurous type person, and she loved fishing as well. And one, one of the neat things in her home, actually, a in their entrance way, they have a giant, uh, I think it's a sailfish, looks kind of, you know, it was probably eight feet long, and, and it's just a really neat feature, but she loved deep sea fishing, and so she wanted to take the whole family deep sea fishing, and so they went. The problem is, uh, a number of people in the family uh, have some pretty big problems with motion sickness, and if you've ever been on a boat out on the sea, that's not a good combination, having problems with motion sickness and being on So what they decided to do was take just a little bit of Dramamine, because as I understand it, I've never taken it myself, but I understand it helps with motion sickness. That's the purpose of it. But as I also understand, one of the side effects of Dramamine is it can cause drowsiness. Well, if, if you were to look at some pictures from this deep sea fishing trip, what you would see is Aaron's grandmother deep sea fishing and pretty much the rest of the family sleeping. These things happen. Our story today is another story about somebody asleep on a boat out on the sea. But when we see Jesus sleeping in today's text, it is very different. He is not sleeping because he has been drugged. And beyond that, he is not sleeping, having been lulled to sleep by the warmth of the sun and the sweet rocking of the boat on the waves. 
we see here that Jesus was asleep because he was weary, because he was tired. And we can take some comfort just in that alone, just the fact that Jesus was very human, just like us. He grew tired, he grew weary. He had had a long day. Hebrews 4 says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted just as we are yet without sin. And we see here the humanity of Jesus. He was tired, very tired, even so much so that as the wind whipped up and the waves battered the boat that he still was sleeping while there was all this commotion going on around him. Even as verse 37 says, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was filling with water. We see here a great storm. And that's the first of three greats we see in this passage. In the Greek, the word is mega. And mega shows up here. We, we use that word in English sometimes to denote greatness, bigness, largeness. There are three megas in this passage. There is, in verse 37, a great storm. And in verse 39, there is a great calm. And in verse 41, a great fear. I want to look at these today. The great storm, first of all, was not uncommon for the Sea of Galilee. In this area, not far from there is Mount Hermon, and the cool air from the region of Mount Hermon would, would come down the mountainside, and it would mix with the warm air above the shallow waters of the Sea of Galilee, and oftentimes very tempestuous storms would rise up. There would be violent violent storms. Now we need to remember that a number of the people in this boat with Jesus were fishermen. They made their living on this very water. They were familiar with it. They knew what it was like. And so when we read that they were so fearful, that they feared for their lives, that we know that this was no ordinary storm. It must have been a massive storm. And even so, while everybody around him was fearing for their lives, Jesus, we're told in verse 38, was asleep on the cushion. Now you can imagine what it must have been like as he slept and the disciples are frantically trying to bear out water and, and they're wondering what we should do, what should we do, and, and finally they decide we need to wake up Jesus and, and they're hollering to wake him up and you can imagine it, it, that there's noise, the waves are crashing, the wind is blowing, it's loud, there's uh, all kinds of pandemonium in the boat and there would be any number of things said and that's why it's no surprise to us when we read Matthew, Mark and Luke as they all tell the story we see that each of the writers puts different words in the mouth of those who are with Jesus and surely among the 10 to 15 people who would have fit in this fishing boat there would have been any number of things said it's not surprising Luke says that they woke him saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And Matthew says that they woke him saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. But Mark's telling of this story has a slightly different spin on it. We need to remember that Mark is telling us what happened based on the eyewitness account of the Apostle Peter. And his words here, as they often are, are more indicting of the disciples. According to Mark, they 
question the loving care and tender mercies of their Lord by saying, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? You know, sometimes a question is not really a question at all, is it? Sometimes a question is actually an accusation. And I think that's what we have here, an accusation. I, I imagine that you have been unjustly criticized at some point in your life, and perhaps you've even unjustly criticized another. I think back to when I was a 17-year-old boy, foolish and headstrong as 17-year-old boys often are, I had an argument with my father, and you'd have to know my father to really have the full weight of this. He, he's probably the most stoic individual I've ever met. I, I was talking with my mom recently when I was back in St. Louis, and we talked about the fact that, that I, I literally have never heard my father raise his voice at my mother, and, and maybe a handful of times at me, and believe me, I deserve to have his voice raised at me more than a handful of times. But on this one occasion, we were having an argument, and I, as a 17-year-old, uh, made a baseless accusation in the form of a question. I, I can't even remember exactly what led up to it, but I, I said to my father, do you even care about me? They were stinging words, words that I regretted almost as instantly as I said them. And the reason I regretted them so much was because I could tell that they had very much hurt my father. That was the first time in my life I'd ever seen my father weep. And I regretted terribly having pierced his heart in that way with the words of this accusation in the form of a question. I thought about that time this week as I was studying this passage, and I thought, how must it have felt for Jesus when his disciples, who had seen him, who had walked with him, who had experienced his love, when he heard them ask, don't you care that we're perishing? Don't you care? And I wondered, if I were Jesus, how would I respond to that? And I fear that the way I'd respond to it probably is not well. I would probably be angry, and, and I probably would shoot back at them with some sarcastic statement. And, and if I were Jesus, I, I, I might even pray the, to God that I'd just ask my father to send down the biggest humdinger of a storm that see a Galilee had ever seen, just so these guys could know what real fear is. But that's not how Jesus acts. Jesus instead responds quite mercifully. And we see here that his mercy is not at all conditioned upon the behavior of those who are following him. Because they have failed to trust at this moment, and yet he pours out his mercy. They fail to trust it, and when we fail to trust, we miss out on oh so much. I once went sailing myself, 
wasn't on the Sea of Galilee, it was on Lake Michigan. A friend and I were on a trip and we went to Wisconsin and visited his girlfriend and her, his girlfriend's father had a sailboat. And he took us out on Lake Michigan and it was wonderful. It was one of those just perfect days where, where it was not a cloud in the sky and we got out on the lake and, and the wind was blowing and we were zipping around the lake and it was just fantastic. I had never done anything like this before and it was just a wonderful experience. And finally, he, he, he asked me if I'd like to take control of the boat. I said, really? And he said, yeah, go ahead. And so I said, okay, great. And I grab it and I, and, and I, I pull towards myself and, and as I pull, the, the boat starts to, to tilt and, and the wind catches in the sail and the boat just pitches real quick and I, oh, I was scared and the boat steadied and straightened up and the wind comes out of the sail and he laughed at me and he said don't worry you're not going to tip the boat over I said really he said you're not going to tip it over okay really he says yeah take a look at this this and he points out this wooden rail that goes around the outside of the boat on, on the outside of it pretty close to the top he said we, we've tried to bury that rail in the water and we can't do it I said so you're saying it's, it's impossible for me to tip the boat over he said you can't capsize it try as you may I said okay if you say so and so I took control again and, and pulled into the wind and, and as I did, the boat again started to tip, but I didn't adjust this time. I just said, we're going to catch as much wind as we possibly can. And I held it, and, and we just took off and pew, across the lake. And we were zipping around across the lake, and it was amazing. It was an incredible experience. I, I felt as if I had harnessed the wind in my bare hands, as if I held all of its power and his fury at my fingertips. And it was an exhilarating feeling. And I was able to have that feeling because I trusted in the one who was the authority at that time. We need to trust in the one who is the ultimate authority. And when we fail to trust in him and in his word, we miss out on so much of what he would otherwise have for us. Now we need to be careful not to be too hard on the disciples. First of all, because let's face it, if we were in their place, we most likely would have reacted in a very similar way. After all, as J.C. Ryle puts it, sight, sense, and feeling make even believers very poor theologians. That's true, isn't it? So often our senses perceive the reality around us and it causes what we know to be true about God to fade into the background. And we focus instead on what is right in front of us, the storms, the troubles, the problems. That's what happened to the disciples, but they, they ought to have instead focused on what they knew about Jesus' character, what they knew about Jesus' power. But instead, they failed to do this. The second reason we ought not be too hard on them is uh, a quote I, I saw recently from Tim Keller. This is a really good quote, I thought. He said, people who believe more must not be hard on those who believe 
bless. Why? Because faith ultimately is not a virtue, but a gift. True words. Faith ultimately is not a virtue, but a gift. It's not something we do, not something that we build up by our own strength from within inside us, but rather something that God pours out to us mercifully, that he gives us graciously. And even having received this gift, often we neglect it. That's what the disciples were doing, and it's what we do every time we fear, every time we fail to trust that Christ is willing and able to provide not what we want, but what we need. And we see here that he awakes in verse 39 and rebukes not the disciples, which he had every right to do, but rather the wind. And he says not to the disciples, but to the sea, peace, be still. Essentially, he says, silence. And what's even more amazing than the fact that Jesus says this to the great storm, as opposed to saying it to the doubting disciples, is the fact that the great storm obeys him. Now, the consensus was among ancients, and really is among us, that the sea is a dangerous menace, that there's no power that is really able to control the sea other than the power of God. And yet we see here in verse 39 that the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Out of this great storm had now come a great calm, and Jesus did not bring this great calm about by any higher authority, rather he did it by the power of his word. When we pray, we come before God and we pray in Jesus' name, because we have no right to stand before God on our own merits but rather we come in Jesus' name, so we speak on his authority. But when Jesus spoke to the storm, when he stilled the waves and the wind, he did not do it by a higher authority. He did it on his own word because he did not need to appeal to any higher authority. For it is the power of his word by which all things were created. It is the power of his word by which all things are sustained. For he is the highest authority. And for those who are his, for those who are united with Christ, those who are with him, this truth ought to be a great calming influence. It ought to bring us great calm. It ought to bring us great peace to know that the one that we are with is the ultimate authority, the ultimate power it's not that there won't be any problems. Sometimes people teach this way. They say, if only you follow Christ, then you won't have any problems. And if you do have any problems, well, it's because you're not following Christ close enough. But let's look at the disciples right here. When they crossed the sea, why did they cross the sea? Well, they crossed the sea because Jesus asked them to. So they were being faithful in that. They were doing exactly what Jesus asked them to do. 
and he led them right into a storm. Sometimes God will do this. He will lead us into storms. And he does this so that we might have our faith tested, so that we might know that he is God in every situation, and that we might know that he is sufficient in every situation, and that there is no situation where he will not be able to see us through. And so it is here that there will be problems, but our ultimate problem, the problem of sin and of death, has been taken care of. And because of that, we no longer need stand naked before the burning blaze of God's righteous judgment, but rather we stand before God clothed in the righteous robes of Christ Jesus. And so that problem of sin and death and Satan have been conquered for us on our behalf by Christ Jesus. And because of this, in one sense, we need fear nothing. For the most fearsome of all things has been defeated. But even so, he says in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Why are they afraid? Why are they still afraid? Even after the storm has been calmed, they're more afraid then than they were before. Before they were worried, but now they're really, really afraid. Quite literally, we see in verse 41, they feared a great fear. We see this great fear. The reason for it was it was started, starting to dawn on them, to truly dawn on them who this was they were with, who this was they were following. And they asked one another, who, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? They thought they knew who Jesus was, but even though they had trusted him as their Messiah, even though they, they trusted him, they had placed that trust in him, they were following him. They did not truly, with all of their being, understand what that meant. But now that they had come face to face with his power, they were awestruck. It's a right reaction when you come face to face with God. There is nothing wrong with that. It is a right reaction to fear. It's akin to Isaiah's reaction in Isaiah 6 when he comes before God in all of his righteousness and all of his holiness and all of his glory. And he says, woe is me for I am lost. I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. That was the right response for Isaiah there, and it's the right response for us. When you consider Christ, if you are his, that should bring you great calm. But at the same time, it is also right, even as Christ's followers, that we would have a sense of awe, of fear around him. I fear that we have too commonly in the church today turned Christ into our buddy and turned God into the great grandfather up in the sky who asks us to come sit on his lap and just gives us lollipops all day long. Yes, 
Jesus Christ is our brother. And God is our father. But we must not let this blessed gift of God's closest closeness to us obscure the reality of his mightiness and his holiness and his righteousness. We have an awesome God. Not just awesome in the sense that he's, oh, really cool. Awesome in the sense that he ought to evoke our awe. When we stand before God, that is a weighty, weighty thing. I don't know where you are tonight spiritually. I don't know. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ. Perhaps you have trusted Christ, but didn't really understand what that meant at that time, didn't really understand who it was that you were claiming you would follow. Perhaps you're closer to Christ now than you ever have been, and and you have such an intimate walk with him that you are greatly blessed. Wherever you are along this spectrum, really my application for you tonight is the same. It is to pause wherever you are and to ask yourself the same question the disciples asked. It's a question we all need to constantly be going back to, constantly thinking about in our minds. Who then is this man? Who is Jesus Christ? That is what we need to ask. And beyond that, that is what we need to answer. And note that Mark gives us no answer in the text. It's actually a literary device, most people think, where he is calling the reader to answer this question. He is trying to provoke an answer in the reader by, by not giving an answer to the question. Because it is the most important question. It's the question we all must answer. Who is Jesus? Is he just a man? Is he a really good man, a great teacher? Or is he the Son of God who died on a cross so that we might have fellowship with God, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that his blood might be poured out on us and that we might be cleansed from the guilt of our sin? Mark doesn't answer this question, but he does give us a hint by means of another literary device. In closing, I I just want to share with you an observation that Tim Keller makes that I thought was very, very interesting. Much of Mark's language in this passage is parallel, almost identical, really, to the language we see in the book of Jonah. When we see the book of Jonah and put it side by side with this passage, we consider that both stories take place on a boat, And in both cases, the boat is overtaken by a great storm. And in both cases, Jesus in one and Jonah in the other are asleep on this boat, while the other passengers of the boat worry that they might be dying, and they wake up Jesus and Jonah. The only thing that's different in the two stories is God intervenes miraculously in both of them stilling the storm, but the means by which he intervenes in the two are different. For Jonah tells the sailors with him, throw me into the water and you will be safe. 
and the waters will be stilled. Jesus, on the other hand, merely speaks the word, and by the power of his word, it is done. Two closing observations. One, we've already talked about the power of Jesus' word. That's very clear to us in this. But secondly, I think we're called to realize in this comparison that Jesus is the true Jonah. Jesus is the one who is greater than Jonah. He is the one who not only calms our storms, but takes the full force of their impact. He absorbs their fury. Of course, he has done this on the cross. The storm that should have been for us, he experienced. And because he experienced it, we can be safe. The waters are stilled. The storm is done. And he does this because he loves us. And he does this because he does know that we are perishing. And he does care that we are perishing. And because Jesus absorbed this blow on Calvary's cross, and because he expired this blow on Calvary's cross, the greatest storm that we could ever face has been conquered. And if indeed Jesus would conquer this greatest of storm, then we can have confidence that he will lift us up, that he will support us, that he will see us through any other storm that we might face. And one day he will come again. And every storm will be put to rest. Every storm will be made calm. And there will be no more stormy sea. In fact, God's word says there will be no more sea. We long for that day. We look forward to that day. And while we do, we cling to the cross, that cross of Christ, the cross where our salvation was purchased and where our storms were defeated. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. And we thank you most of all that you have defeated our storms, that you have absorbed their punishment and their pounding, and that you have made us righteous in your eyes that we might have fellowship with you. Receive our worship tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.